0: hello and welcome to the range project podcast my name is chris mcgrory and i just graduated from harvard where i played baseball and studied psychology and economics and in these conversations i'm trying to learn from those around me That's really it. I want to learn what my amazing guests do and how they do it. So I'm looking for tips and tricks they use, plus mental frameworks they have, so you and I can apply them in our own lives. And in this episode, I was able to connect with my own Harvard teacher, Dr. Jacob Rode, who is now a postdoc in the psychology department, researching and teaching about the intersection of psychology and environmental sustainability. And in college at Johns Hopkins, Jacob studied sustainability, and afterwards, he got his PhD in psychology at UC Irvine. Which all sounds obvious looking back, but we actually dive into how he was fairly undecided for a while, but trusted the path that he fell into would be the right one. And broadly speaking, he looks at why some people just don't care about the environment, and how we can influence their opinion. And right now, Jacob is looking at how we can use renewable energy specifically to avoid the political polarization of climate change and environmental policy, which I think is super cool and can be applied in the real world. But I didn't take a class about that specifically, which is why I wanted to have him as a guest on the podcast. I did take, though, his class called Nature Can Nurture. So we dive into the benefits of spending time in nature and how he actually uses surfing for relaxation and like a meditation in his own life before talking about just how politicized our environmental opinions are and why that makes it really hard to change others' beliefs. So with all that said, I really enjoyed this one about the cool applications of social psychology and hope you do too. So here's Dr. Jacob road.
1: One, two, three, do it.
0: Jacob, how you doing?
1: Hey, good. I'm good. Thanks for uh, having me on.
0: No, thank you for being so open and available to chat with me. I'm really looking forward to this one. My first teacher of mine, first doctor, first like grown adult on the podcast. So there's a lot of firsts. So uh, I'm expecting a lot of wisdom today.
1: Uh, it's a lot of pressure. I uh, yeah. It, I guess I, I don't usually think of myself as the, the grown adult in the room. I feel uh, <laughs> well, it's an honor.
0: No, I'm I'm excited. Like I said, and as I'll mention in the introduction, I took your class, so that's how we've connected. And right now, where are you zooming from?
1: I'm in Santa Monica, California.
0: Okay. Santa Monica, California, where you zoomed from all semester, right? <laughs> Teaching yes. class.
1: Yep. Yep. Been here for, uh, yeah, the whole, uh, taught courses on zoom for the whole year from the same, uh, same apartment.
0: And I had a lot of fun in, in your class. And I remember like the first class meeting saying like, I literally didn't know the field of psychology and environmental sustainability intersected at all. So I would love to kind of get to know the path of how you got there. And then we can dig into kind of the research that you you've done and you and you read. Does that sound cool?
1: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: Awesome. So I guess to start off, I'm interested to hear if like sustainability and psychology and any of these themes were emphasized at home growing up? Maybe you could paint a picture of kind of what that looked like.
1: Oh, good question. Uh, Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Uh, No, they weren't emphasized. Um, I mean, you know, we were cycled, but it it was just kind of a a thing you do. Uh, It wasn't seen as some sort of like morally right environmental thing. So yeah, it wasn't really, sustainability, I'm trying to think, it wasn't really emphasized too much growing up at at home. And so I I didn't really start becoming aware of issues like climate change and other sustainability issues until probably in high school. And usually it it was all kind of through schooling. And then a little bit, I will say growing up, uh, I learned how to surf as a kid and I really enjoyed surfing. And so there was a little bit through that too, of like kind of protecting nature, the general idea of protecting nature. Uh, I, I kind of encountered that through surfing and, and definitely resonated with, with that. But yeah. Not, not until high school for the more sustainability focused themes.
0: And in, does anything come to mind in high school that you're like, oh, that was, I guess, looking back kind of like the first time I cared about this or read about it, anything um, in particular?
1: Yeah, it It was my AP environmental science class that got me into uh, sustainability. I, I loved learning about earth science and then kind of applying that to issues of sustainability. So figuring out, okay, how can we be more sustainable? We have to know how the earth works and Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And we did a lot of active learning type things, um, kind of the typical environmental science sort of things, but, you know, visited different uh, nature places. And yeah, it was was a really transformative experience. And so, yeah, that kind of got me uh, hooked on environmentalism.
0: Very cool. And okay, being hooked on and being interested in liking it, AP high school class is a lot different and pretty far away from dedicating years and years to studying this post-grad after Johns Hopkins going to UC Irvine. And I don't know how long your program was, but I know it it wasn't just a quick like, one semester (laughs) kind of thing. So if you could fill the gap kind of like what made you so passionate about this topic and then feeling confident like, no, this is what I want to study and really dive into.
1: Yeah, I um I was interested in in terms of the psychology aspect. I was interested in psychology in high school as well, and there was an the only psych course was an AP psych course, and uh, I wasn't able to take it. But I remember thinking like, oh, that seems like an interesting course. And so, kind of in the back of my mind, psychology was a something that seemed interesting. But it's funny, I I remember writing. I don't remember all of my uh, undergrad entrance essays, but I remember the one for Hopkins was actually about how I didn't know what I wanted to do because the, the prompt was about, and I don't know, I, I don't know if this was similar to other colleges, but the prompt was about why are you choosing this major? And sure. um, you know, why do you want to study that? And my major was unde- undeclared I undeclared <laughs> like undecided about it. And so my whole essay was just kind of about like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it felt like everybody else knew what they wanted to do. And I don't there's some positive twist on it somehow. Right. Um, but it, it kind of illustrates that going into undergrad, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And so that I, I started, but I, but I had an eye on environmental type majors. Um, and so in undergrad, I really, the kind of middle to or early to middle career decision was, where do I want to take this sustainability stuff? So, we, so I, I ended up majoring in, Um, sustainability uh, it's kind of like an environmental studies sustainability major Um, and then the question for me was whether we had two tracks in that major and it was whether you wanted to go the natural sciences route or social sciences route and I I thought at first natural sciences would be the way to go and I took um, you know some chemistry and biology courses and (laughs) realized that I wanted I, I, I was more interested in, in studying people and interested in people rather than, you know, inanimate objects. Right. So, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of chemistry and bio. And so I was a little bit hesitant about that. And then the social sciences route, it seemed like from talking to other people, it was really like working for NGOs. Um, I, in, I did an internship at, at an NGO and a lot of it is kind of policy work, which I, I wasn't that interested mm. in. Um and so kind of I was at the standstill of i don 't really know where to take this and then I took a psychology course in my know, second year of, of undergrad, and uh, I really liked it and it was just fascinating um, and I liked the the different methods that researchers used i always I, I know and, and now it's kind of a, little bit going out of fashion, but I really liked the deception studies where people would come into, participants would come into a study, wouldn't really know what's going on. And what they thought the study was about, wasn't actually what it is about. And so I found that really interesting. And so that's where I, I kind of was introduced to this intersection of sustainability and psychology. So yeah, I just remember kind of Googling different things and like learning that there's a journal of environmental psychology, um, and so that's when I really started thinking that grad school might be a possibility because I could take these, this interesting way of studying the world through psychology and its methods, but I could apply that to topics I really care about like environmentalism and sustainability. And yeah, that's kind of how I came upon grad school as a potential option.
0: Yeah. And was there a gap between graduating and going on to grad school or did you go right through?
1: No, you know, I guess that theme of kind of still being somewhat undecided and uncertain carried with me throughout undergrad because I, I, so I applied to psychology graduate programs, a PhD programs, and a couple master's programs, but I also applied to some law schools because um, I thought maybe law might be a good way to apply it to sure. the environment, thinking like maybe environmental law. And then I applied to some master's programs in environmental studies. And so I I've kind of applied to all of them with the sense that, you know, wherever I get in, will kind of lead my direction and steer me towards uh, my future career. And so it ended up being that, uh, you know, UC, I was admitted to UC Irvine for a psychology PhD program. Kind of a big factor there was that it was a program I didn't have to pay for and I got a stipend to do. And so, you know, that's definitely was a big factor in it. And I, I, I was, you know, kind of uncertain, but also excited about it and felt good about it. And in some sense, it's kind of a pragmatic decision. So if you, if you go to law school for, you know, a year or two and don't like it, you owe a lot of money. Uh, if you go to grad school, PhD programs for a year or two and don't like it, you don't owe any money. Yeah, um, you can leave. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And how long did your program take you? It was six years. Six years? Okay. Um, which is pretty typical. Some people finish in five but yeah, yeah, mine was six years.
0: Yeah, just I'm always, I guess, kind of in awe of people who like know what they want. It sounds like you came at it from a different angle. Like you actually didn't really know what you wanted. Yeah. So you went down this path. But the, the reverse is I can't imagine like knowing what you want to do for the next six years of your life, like dedicating, studying this. So I always find that fascinating. And I would love to later we'll dig into exactly what your research is all about, but maybe we start talking about the class that I took with you this past semester, Nature Can Nurture, which is all about, again, this realm of conservation psychology that I didn't know existed just a few months ago. And it's related to your own research, but it's all about kind of like the psychological and health benefits of spending time in nature and fostering ecological worldview. And a really unique part of the class was this weekly journaling practice that you had us do. And I'll try and give a summary. Basically on the syllabus is said, you're going to spend 30 minutes every week in nature with just like a pen and paper in journal, any thoughts kind of reflect on the readings. You can doodle. I mean, the instructions were pretty, pretty open. And so I'm now thinking like, where did you get that idea? I've never had it in a class. It was really weird when I read it at first and I didn't get it until I actually did it. So where did you get that idea?
1: Yeah. Good question. I, uh, I think trying to remember now, I think I might've gotten that from another syllabus of a course, uh, a similar course. Because what I did in designing the course, I kind of took all the resources I can get, different examples of courses and adapted different activities and kind of picked and choose what was, what was interesting. But also this activity, a reason that I liked it and included it um, is I wanted, you know, you all to experience the act of being in nature and to kind of reflect on how you felt that that was influencing you. Because we read a lot of study read a lot of studies about how you know researchers would bring participants into nature, measure them before and after, and see kind of how they've changed either physically and or psychologically and so i I thought this was a good way for you to experience not not the exact same experiences as the studies but experience being in nature and seeing if you could relate to what the researchers find um because sometimes in psych research, we really can relate. Like we read a study and we say, oh, obviously, like totally, that definitely makes sense. Whereas other times we're a little bit more surprised and it's not quite intuitive. So I wanted to see what you all thought about doing the activity and then lining it up with the research and seeing if it worked, as well as getting your feedback on whether it was something that was helpful throughout a course to have kind of a required time in nature. So this required thing that is reflective and semi meditative, but also, you know, something that we tend to not have time for. And so writing it into the course and forcing you all to do it um, would hopefully kind of force you or, or at least help you to get some benefits of, of being in nature.
0: Oh, totally. And I think that required aspect of it was great because I'll be honest, even though as great as it felt like in those 30 minutes, like I haven't continued that practice consistently since the class, but I really liked it when I was doing it. And I remember it actually did change a lot of my opinions of nature. And I could definitely relate to the, the research a little bit better. You just feel just like lower, I guess, the study would probably measure it in like cortisol levels. And me and classmates would just to say, oh, I feel more chill after. And also just the idea of thinking, I used to think of nature as like going out into the woods by my house or going to a national park. And I was on campus in Cambridge. The most nature I had was a tree, a bush in the Charles river, which was, I was lucky. And I found like, no, there's nature there and there are benefits benefits to it. But so it sounds like you stole this natural nature journal idea, but is there any daily weekly routines in your own life that kind of how you incorporate the benefits of nature?
1: Yeah, I, there's a couple ways. so I don't I don't do a nature journal, nature journal, even though I, I probably should. Uh, similar to like I, I I haven't gotten into the practice of meditating, but that's something like I know I should be doing this. Um, and so like kind of what you're saying, when things aren't required, you know, at least it, it, in kind of a university setting, anything that's not required usually gets pushed off. Um, and so kind of our immediate tasks become kind of the center of our focus all the time. Um, so yeah, th- this is an activity that I, I fully support, but just haven't, haven't gotten to the, uh, the habit of doing so. Um, but yeah, my, so it, it also stems from my experience with surfing. It's a similar sort of way of experiencing nature and reflecting and kind of just out there with your thoughts um, and fully immersed into into the ocean. Um, so that's one example. And then another example, which is probably kind of silly, but walking my dog, I get to experience a lot, especially urban nature, um, and kind of similar to what you're saying, forcing, forcing myself to notice the natural uh, scenery around, even when before I might have just kind of dismissed it as just being part of the city. Um, so yeah, those are kind of probably my two Semi meditative times in nature.
0: No, and it's funny you mention the combination of surfing and meditation because, like I said before, I just read this book with a weird title called West of Jesus by Stephen Kotler, and it breaks down the uh, psychology of surfing and kind of why people have these, especially spiritual experiences out on the in the ocean why people are addicted to it and love it and mu- like probably like the back third of it really dove into how surfing is like a meditation in that you're focused here on the moment because if you're not you're you're get you're falling off and you're you're getting scuffed up right so i think there is something to be said so okay you don't think you have a Meditation practice per se, but he digs into like the neurochemistry of it and how they are really similar. And then kind of how he connects that to how people who surf have similar psychological and like spiritual experiences as like really experienced meditators. So I guess now I have to ask you, have you found any sort of like Psychological benefits from surfing. Does does what I'm saying make sense with your experience? Or are you like, no, this guy's crazy? Like, <laughs> dude, like, stop drinking the Kool-Aid.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, and there's a variety of experiences you can have while surfing. And so part of it is mindset, but part of it is also the situation. So, for example, like if I go, I don't know, go out to a local spot and kind of my goal that day and perhaps how the waves are set up that day, I want to get better. And so maybe I'll practice on certain turns or I'll practice on, um, you know, different things. And, and in the, on those days, it doesn't quite feel in the moment. It doesn't quite feel like meditation because I'm usually kind of focused. And, um, you know, a lot of times you're worried about the crowd or you're worried about how you're doing. You get frustrated. If I, if I you know, mess up, I go, I'll get frustrated or similar to like other days you go out and it just happens to be really crowded. And so most of the time you're focused on the other people there um, and maybe not getting very many waves. So again, those times don't feel very meditative in the moment, but I definitely can see the meditative aspect, which is part of the routine. It's part of getting there, getting to the beach, you're putting a wetsuit on, going in the water, coming back, toweling off, changing off. And then it's kind of, you still have the ocean in you, um, which is, I I like that feeling. So, So there's still meditative aspects to it. And like you said, even if, you know, while you're in the water, you're focused on other people or daydreaming. When you're on a wave, you're, you're very much in the moment focused on that wave. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can remember any wave I've taken where I'm taking where I'm not paying attention to, to the wave. So in that sense, yeah, it, it's those aspects of it are very meditative. Although, you know, if you think about surfing, if you're out there for, I don't know, two hours and catch... Yeah, fifteen waves. It's like a total of a minute or two minutes of actually being on waves in those two hours. So most of the time, you're just kind of sitting out in the water. But yeah, I, I so I think there're meditative aspects of it, and then there's, of course, the days where if it's you know hollow or something, and you're you know there there are barrels to be had. Um, those are the most meditative days for sure, um, because yeah, there's nothing quite like being in a barrel and kind of being fully in the ocean while also kind of still riding a wave. Um, Yeah. But those days, at least for me, where I live very, very few and far between.
0: But you have been barreled before, which is, I guess, to explain, that's when the wave literally goes over you and then is like on the water in front of you and then you're riding through it. And so I don't know, what the waves are like in Santa Monica, but you have been barreled before.
1: <laughs> yeah. De- in, in all most, uh, pretty much only beach break, uh, beach break barrel. So, um, which are tend to be like pretty quick. Um, but again, it's still a pretty cool, pretty cool feeling. So nothing like what you would see on TV if, if guys are at like, I don't know, J Bay or pipeline, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. Only kind of smaller beach break hollow waves, but yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a good feeling. Actually, I w- and on the East coast as well. Uh, I've surfed it in Maryland and there's some, some fun barrels there.
0: Very cool. And just last point on this, then we'll, we'll, we'll get back on track, but the idea (laughs) of like you said, Oh, I'm only really focused for a minute or two. I don't know if you've ever meditated, but 90% of it is your mind wandering and then you recognizing that and then being focused on the moment. So I'm sure in a 20 minute meditation, I'm not Actually, focused for more than two minutes, but it's like that noticing and then refocusing that sounds similar, like being totally focused in the moment that you get, like while you're on a wave. That's like what you're trying to get back to if you're just like sitting cross legged, eyes closed, whatever you want to, however you want to meditate.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting parallel. Definitely. I definitely could see that similarity. Uh, Yeah, the only difference I'd say is, you know, in surfing, often. It's a forced refocusing, uh, you know, they always just throwing waves at you, so yeah, whether you like it or not, sometimes you have to refocus, which maybe is less less of a willpower thing versus like in a meditation and you're kind of choosing intentionally to refocus, but yeah, I, I, I that that makes total sense of that similarity,
0: yeah, no, that's that's interesting, and like I said, to uh to kind of write the ship back on what we were talking about, I'd be interested to hear kind of like not like your sales pitch but like what you would say to somebody who is skeptical or just doesn't make time to be in nature like I could only imagine like you were reading all this research and you're like how could you not at least go for a walk around the block in nature so what would you say to folks like that that who just might be either skeptical or kind of apathetic towards the whole thing
1: yeah good question uh I guess it depends. There's, there's kind of a, I don't know, I guess seemingly two contradictory things that may, may be true at the same time of you can't force someone to have a positive (laughs) meditative experience, right? So you can't force someone to get benefits out of nature, right? You can't force them to say, Oh no, you're, you have to go on a walk and you have to enjoy nature and you have to feel calmer after but at the same time, like we were talking about, if, you know, certain things we don't force ourselves to do, uh, we're not ever going to do them. Or they kind of, if, they, if they're not part of a habit or routine, they often will just kind of get washed away as things that we always want to do and never actually do. So for me, you know, that'd be meditation, something I feel like I should do. And I recognize that it uh, has a ton of benefits, but just hasn't become part of my habit or routine. And so it kind of stays, stays out there. And so I guess there's different things of whether somebody wants to get the benefits of nature and just hasn't found the time to. And in which case, I'm a you know, big fan of habits and routines and forcing things into your daily life until they become something that you want to do. So some, like, um, and then, you know, this has been talked about in many books and stuff like that. Um, but similar to like what I was mentioning, walking my dog, um, something I have to do. I have to walk my dog. But getting in that habit, I've really enjoyed these walks and enjoy being in nature. Um, similarly, things like, you know, going to the gym is probably the most common, but silly example. Once you're in a routine of going to the gym, it's so much easier to go. And so, yeah, people who want to be in nature and, and recognize that there are benefits. I, I would say making it a routine, making it a habit, figuring out some way of kind of semi-forcing yourself to, to be in there. Or maybe maybe it's finding something fun to do that happens to be in nature. Um, For the people who are skeptical of, perhaps skeptical of the benefits uh, of nature, you know, I I would kind of point them to to the research, but I would also understand, you know, the the studies on the benefits of nature, while there have been a ton of them, um, you know, they're typically underpowered, so they typically don't have a lot of uh, participants, they're typically on college students. And, and often they're on convenience samples. So they're people that generally, you know, volunteer to sign up for a study and aren't representative of the, of the population. Um, so there are certainly methodological holes in the research on nature. However, there's been a ton of work on it and it's very intuitive. So it's, I think when you can align the results of kind of a body of research, whether it has methodological problems or not with people's intuitive experiences of being in nature um, and kind of philosophers and thinkers have all talked about the benefits of nature. Um, you can feel pretty confident that there's, there's something there. Um, maybe we can argue about how big the effect is. Uh, maybe we can argue about some boundary conditions and whether, you know, what, what makes for the ideal nature experience or not and whether how that varies by individual demographic or, or personality. Um, but the idea that nature is generally beneficial I think is, is a pretty robust finding, um, both empirically and, um, intuitively. And do
0: you have a favorite finding that you kind of maybe would point somebody to, or is there something that you're like, Oh, that's like the most surprising or the one that you kind of, that I guess comes to mind when you think of conservation psychology insofar as like the psychological or health benefits of nature?
1: There, I'm not sure if I have the, a favorite study on just like the main effect of nature on our, our psychology of health, because it's kind of a lot of scattered types of studies published in different types of journals. Like we saw in our class, we saw a lot of studies in environmental psychology journals, but also... Papers in um, like landscape architecture right. or uh, urban planning journals. So uh, I don't know if I have a favorite specific study just on like kind of the main effect of nature. But one of my favorite studies we read in the course about affective forecasting that I think really hits on the not only the problem of of underestimating how we'll experience how we'll feel after being in nature, but also uh, just the general problem of affective forecasting in that. Uh, The the paper shows that people don't expect to get these benefits of a simple walk through nature, but end up do getting benefits when they actually experience it. And I think that that really hits on a lot of what we've been talking about is that it's hard for us to imagine just kind of in these hypothetical forecasting situations of, oh, you know, I'll be happier if I just take the walk that's two minutes quicker because I'm busy and I, I need to get things done. And it's better for me to spend those two minutes doing something productive. But when we actually do take the nature walk, we tend to feel pretty good.
0: No, that's so cool that that's how you wrapped everything, wrapped everything up. And that um, connects a lot of what we were talking about. And just to define uh, affective forecasting, that's just the idea that we don't know how we're going to feel in the future. And so we might not know that, or we might underestimate how we're going to feel after a walk in nature, for example. So no, that's perfect. That That's exactly where you should point somebody to if they're they're skeptical, like, look, like you don't even know how you're going to feel, <laughs> and you're not going to know how you feel about the environment and the benefits of nature. So thank you for, for pointing that one out. And so that's just one class that you teach. The other two that I didn't get the chance to take first was uh, also offered political polarization and misinformation which when i saw that you taught both of these classes i was like who is this guy like like what is how do those connect but there is obviously a lot of misinformation around climate change and kind of sustainable attitudes and like the policy that's connected with it and then also psychology for a sustainable future which is kind of talking about how like humans and human psychology and our impact on destroying the environment. Do I have that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: So I guess I would be interested to hear kind of, you're just trying in kind of these two realms, you're trying to influence environmental attitudes, right? Is that kind of like the most basic way of saying it?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And so I was reading, I don't know, it might have been a college, uh, a PhD dissertation or another paper that you've written. And in it, it said like, it's easier to weaken beliefs in climate change with misinformation than it is to strengthen beliefs in climate change with like true facts and whatever scientific uh, consensus and whatever. So when I read that, I was like, is there any hope (laughs) like give me, give me some hope here. Like what, what is there? um, Like, what can we look towards to kind of try and positively influence others opinions?
1: Yeah, that that's uh, yeah. You you did your research. Uh, That's uh, yeah. From a recent paper that came out uh, this month, last month. And so my research in kind of, in grad school and transitioning into my postdoc has been about kind of influencing people's environmental attitudes. So why do we? Why do people not act unsustainably, and why do they not take steps to act more sustainably and to, to kind of care more about things like climate change? Um, and so often I would have I, I would run experimental studies where we, you know, we give people information. Uh, one of my early studies was about fracking, so I gave people information about how, you know, the costs of fracking outweigh the benefits. Um, They kind of flipped it around. And then basically what we find is that sometimes information would, would kind of influence people's opinions, but often uh, politics is just the main driver of people's opinions. So, you know, and I did various kind of uh, experimental manipulations, but often people wouldn't really respond to the new information about, you know, whether it's the environment or fracking specifically but their political identity would be driving their attitudes. Um, and so I, I decided to conduct a meta-analysis on different interventions, because a lot of researchers, researchers have been doing this saying, okay, how do we get people to care about climate change? And so I, I took a lot of these studies and uh, combined them quantitatively to see, okay, what's the best way of influencing people's climate change attitudes? Um, and then there's a few different findings, but. The one that you hit on was one that we we found that in some studies, people, researchers would give people misinformation about climate change. Um, For example, you know, uh, an article saying that, you know, sea ice has been increasing and so therefore climate change isn't a problem. Um, But they would often in those same studies have another experimental condition where they give people correction to the misinformation um, or just kind of uh, information to kind of get people to believe in climate change. And so what we found is that looking at only interventions that were trying to increase people's belief in climate change, they, they didn't really work or they, they worked, but the the effect was very, very small. And that was kind of consistently small. There wasn't really any one type of intervention that worked well. But when you look at interventions where they gave people some misinformation about climate change, people were very uh, quick to disbelieve or be more skeptical about climate change. So there's an asymmetry there where it's easier to to weaken people's climate change attitudes. Um, And that makes sense from on a number of levels kind of even going back to psychological research on um, people's, you know, preference for the the easiest path and preference for optimism. So of course climate change isn't a good thing and nobody wants it to be happening. Nobody wants to have all these negative effects. So when we get information that the effects aren't that bad, Um, we're going to be more likely to kind of accept that than if we get information that the effects are really bad and the, the, you know, bunch of bad things are going to happen. We'll be a bit more resistant to that information just because it's not a good thing about that that's happening. Um, So kind of going long way of going to your original question is, is there any hope? Um, I don't know. I I think I, I actually see the hope Not in any one experimental study, but kind of looking over time and how people's attitudes have shifted. And there's definitely data showing that people are, the, the public opinion about climate change is definitely growing towards accepting that it's happening. So if you look right now, most people acknowledge that climate change is happening. Most, even most Republicans acknowledge that climate change is happening. Um, Most people acknowledge that humans are causing climate change and most Republicans acknowledge also that humans are causing climate change. Um, And this, these numbers have been increasing over the past 10 years or so. Now, when it comes to policies and actually implementing policies, there's still a stark political divide. Um, But my hope would be that the, the, the direction is positive and we're kind of getting there. Now it may be more slow, it may be too slow. Yeah. My, my hope is kind of change over time and perhaps at some point there there'll be a tipping point. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that. No, that's, that's good.
0: And I think either you just said it or I, or I read it that it's easier to change beliefs than policy attitudes, which I guess makes sense because people's identities are more tightly linked to political ideology than say like their belief in climate change do i have that right like why why is it that it's easier to change beliefs about climate change than policy about climate change
1: yeah there's a few potential reasons um Let me see where to start. I'll start with, there's a finding called a a paper on what's called solution aversion. So basically if people don't like the solution to a problem, they're less likely to acknowledge the problem. And so this has been studied with climate change that um, if you, they, they gave Republicans and Democrats different solutions to climate change. And if it was a heavy government regulation solution to climate change, people were less likely to acknowledge that climate change is a problem. Um, because they don't like the solution, so they'll deny the problem. And then the opposite occurred, where if you gave them the free market solution, um, they're more likely to acknowledge, okay, climate change is 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 a problem. Um, and I think a related thing plays out such that people can acknowledge, okay, I guess I guess you're right, maybe climate change is happening, but we don't need more government regulations. Or if, if China's not going to have to transition their economy away from fossil fuels, then we shouldn't either. And so even if climate change is a problem, we shouldn't go about it in this certain way of solving it. Um, so again, with, with kind of just belief and acknowledging that climate change is happening, although there obviously are potentially policy implications, they're, they're, they can be disconnected. And so when you look at actual policy, it's a lot harder to get people to acknowledge like, okay, we should take this policy step or shouldn't take that policy step. And like you're saying, policies are often more closely linked with political identities. So if it's a a governmental policy, that's something that generally Democrats are going to favor more than than Republicans versus kind of free market policies. And then, of course, kind of a methodological thing with that paper is that perhaps the studies we were uh, including in our meta-analysis, perhaps they were targeting belief in climate change, but not really targeting policy. And so they're more effective for belief because that's what the researchers were trying to change. And so that's kind of a methodological potential explanation for it. But yeah, and that definitely is going to drive my future research at focusing on policy beliefs.
0: Okay. And let us I'll definitely want to hit on future research, but solution aversion was a part of a book I just read, We I mentioned it before, uh, Adam Grant's new book, Think Again. And so that book was all about kind of persuading, not persuading in like the Cialdini sense, but kind of trying to have like civil debates, I guess, to kind of get more towards the truth. And one of the tactics was to offer a lot of different solution, solutions, because we know of this Solution aversion. If you don't like the solution to the problem, then you're just going to deny the problem. And another theme in that book was like only people can change their own minds. Is that something that you have found in your own research or just kind of like the research at large? Like maybe we shouldn't be trying to influence people. Like you said, it's tough to change climate change attitudes with just like facts so maybe instead of going that route trying to like ask questions to get people to think about like why do they have the beliefs they do and like try and explain climate change and just show themselves how little they know that would be kind of my stance what do you you have any thoughts on that perspective
1: yeah and there's a paper but I don't know if it's been rep. I, I think there's a recent non-replication of it. Yeah, there's paper on, um, yeah, if you ask people to explain a policy, they end up being less certain about it because you know people generally kind of support things and don't quite know exactly the mechanism behind that policy or how, how it works. Yeah, I, I think there's a few things going on. You know, one problem is that And when people sign up for research they assume the researchers are uh pretty liberal and so if they get climate change stuff from liberal researchers they're gonna assume they're trying to be persuaded um which i think is a barrier towards finding you know a barrier towards um, the uh external validity of the study because you know this is gonna look different um, with, with different people in a different setting. Um, so I, th- I think there's that concern. And I, yeah, I do think, I think information does play a role and we've seen that with like misinformation that people will often rely on misinformation to inform some of their practices and, and policy support. But I agree with you, I think there are definitely, a lot of our policy beliefs are social. And it's who we're talking to, who we're hanging out with, who are going to influence our, our policy attitudes. Um, that's a little bit harder to study, you know, if, as, a, as a researcher and studying in the lab. So I haven't quite investigated that aspect of it. But I do think if we're looking at what is going to have the biggest effect, I think social environments are going to have a pretty big effect on policy attitudes um, and the trick would just be figuring out how to study that. Yeah, I would, I would definitely, and, and there's a kind of an old, you know, psychological model called the information deficit model, which kind of looks at people as people just don't know enough about a topic and all they need is more information about it. And then they'll kind of align with scientists or if it's a scientific thing, but that's been, there's not a ton of support for that model. Uh, you know, there's, there's debates, but um, I tend to fall more in the camp of motivated reasoning such that if you overload people with information, it's, they're not always just gonna take that information and update their beliefs in kind of a, uh, that same direction, but rather um, people will tend to come to their prior beliefs um, and tend to come to the conclusions that they kind of had or are predisposed to want to, to, want to believe.
0: And can you just quickly define motivated reasoning? I think you explained it in, in your example.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the idea and you'll find, depending actually on the field, you'll find different definitions of this. Um, but it's the idea that people reason with a goal in mind. And so let's say if it's a directional goal, so let's say for uh, partisan motivated reasoning, I'm going to, let's say I have a political stance on something. Maybe I have a political party that I support. I'm going to reason and interpret information in the world with the goal of supporting my political party, um, which kind of goes back to social identity theory. So for example, if I get information that says climate change is a hoax, I'm going to be pretty skeptical of that information and and try to figure out ways in which it's wrong or, or kind of interpret it in light of uh, not wanting that to be the, the conclusion I, I come to. Um, now, a motivated reasoning is pretty broad because you know there's also people can have accuracy goals in which they want to be accurate about the world. So yeah, there, there's lots of different nuance to it, but that's a general idea that, and to summarize the general idea is that people are skeptical of information. They don't want to believe in overly accepting of information. They, they do want to believe at a very kind of baseline level.
0: No, that's awesome. And is that in any way connected to kind of the future research you're looking to do, if you can speak to that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, Right now, I've been working on a project with kind of various branches that are kind of in the the future. We haven't quite collected data on everything yet. Um, But I've been working on the idea of renewable energy as this kind of wedge into climate action, because uh, if you look at public opinion surveys... People are generally pro-renewable energy, although, you know, that can kind of waver depending on the the specific situation. But, you know, pretty much everybody loves windmills, everybody loves solar panels. Um, There are just debates on, you know, how effective they can be and how much of the load they can bear. So my, yeah, my kind of future research is to utilize that to, in a way, depoliticize climate change of saying, like, we can we can solve climate change through these apolitical means in which most people support so, related to solution aversion of, of making the solution more pal- palatable. but yeah, there are different, different different aspects of that and, and different branches to that that I want to go, but that's that's my direction now, but certainly certainly we'll be looking for other other future studies.
0: No, I like that because that kind of skirts talking about this divisive issue that's so loaded and if we can get to a solution that everybody likes for whatever reason who cares whether you're hugging trees or you just think you can make money off of having a solar power company or investing in a solar power whatever it might be who cares i think i like that idea of finding a solution everybody likes and then just kind of going around going around the issue in So what would you be looking at specifically seeing if kind of this solution does exactly that, gets around the polarization of the issue? Or can you just say more about that?
1: Yeah, and it depends. And so for example, so some studies I've collected data on and it's one study worked, the other one didn't. But basically we were looking at whether if you ask people about their climate change beliefs before or ask after asking them about their renewable energy beliefs. Um, so in a first kind of small study we did, we actually found that if you, for Republicans, if you ask them about their climate change beliefs and then renewable energy, they have lower belief in climate change than if you ask them about renewable energy and then climate change. Again, kind of setting up the idea of like, OK, because from previous data, we know that Republicans generally support renewable energy and using that as a wedge into like, well, you support renewable energy and therefore climate change and acknowledging that climate change is a problem, isn't that big of a deal because, you know, solving it, will use some of these things that you like similar to solution aversion, Um, we didn't find that same thing in the second study, bigger study, which again, it's a pretty subtle manipulation. So I'm not that surprised. Um, but yeah, we're kind of taking that general idea and looking of ways of making it more explicit and more overt. um, Yeah. That's the kind of the, the, the general idea, which again is ways in which any way in which we can depoliticize climate change of showing that it's, it's not a a political issue. Um, So how can we find kind of mutually agreed upon policies that can, that can help solve solve climate change.
0: Well, yeah, dang. I'm glad I asked about future direction. That's cool. And is there anything, whether it's tied to your research or not, that you get particularly excited about in this whole field that you just kind of want to wanna share with the world out there, all the millions of listeners?
1: Yeah. Um, in part, I, I find this in my own data. I've also seen this in Classes as well. Um, I think we really underestimate the degree to which Republicans and Democrats actually agree on a lot of these issues of uh, sustainability. Um, so, for example, if you look at, so I'll talk about my recent data. Um, we asked people, you know, how would a typical Republican, how would a typical Democrat answer this question? And it was, we did like a renewable energy question, like, I think we should use more clean energy. And then we did a climate change. Our climate change is caused by humans. And everybody was correct about Democrats. So everybody thought a typical Democrat would be a six or a seven out of seven. Democrats thought Republicans would be like a two on the scale. Republicans thought they themselves would be like a three on the scale, three to four. And yet actual Republicans were around a five on the scale. And so both Democrats and Republicans underestimated Republican belief in climate change and support for renewable energy. And I find that in my classes as well. I, in the Sustainable Future class, um, I did a, a survey with the, the students. I think I even did this in the Nature and Nurture class a little yeah, bit. Yeah, at the end. Um, yeah, yeah. Where I'll ask students like, okay, what percentage of Republicans think that we need to expand solar energy in the US? Or what percentage of Republicans think that climate change is happening? And without fail, students underestimate it. Um, that you know, generally, the, the the students will say that very few Republicans support renewable energy or believe in climate change, or want to kind of act more environmentally. When actually, there there's a lot more agreement than we than we think. And so, this is kind of related to my future directions of finding these areas of agreement and using them as ways to push real climate policy. Because again, it's one thing to get a majority of republicans to say they believe in climate change which they already already do it's another to say okay uh, do you support us reentering the paris agreement or do you support um you know net zero emissions by 2050 and so my my goal is kind of closing that gap how can we use this agreement to actually get agreement on uh, specific policies so i don't have any uh studies or data um, to get there, but I don't I'm, I'm working on it. There was actually a recent paper published, I think, might don't this month, and they did this kind of real world advertising campaigns towards Republicans, and they, they were able to increase Republican belief in climate change and belief that it's human cost. Again, I don't know if they made any, I, I'd have to read it a little bit more thoroughly, but um, I'm not sure if they were able to change policy support kind of goes back to original findings, but um, no, that's cool Hope out
0: there. And I would love if you could send that over after that. um, That'd be, that'd be cool. And also that answer kind of goes back to like one of my first questions about like, is there any hope? Like, yeah, there is hope because it sounds like we're closer than like our actual true opinions might be closer than we like project on others or we project on others with our shared With our shared identity, so that's, I don't know, that sounds encouraging to me. So that's there's hope there, and I'm just looking at the clock to think about kind of rounding this down. And I love to end with some like rapid fire questions. And Definitely. I caught something earlier. You said you you love habits and routines in kind of talking about how you would encourage people to spend time in nature. Do you have any favorite habits or routines that like when you're crushing it day in and day out that like you're checking off those boxes for I guess favorite habits or routines
1: (laughs) good question okay this is a really silly one no this is this Uh, is what the (laughs) rapid fires
0: is for this is why they wouldn't fit in the rest of the conversation this is good
1: yeah I I think it signals I'm very much uh I like habits or routines because they keep me on track and and a lot, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm definitely not a type A personality where I need things to be a certain way. I'm very much, I can get out of habits and routines very easily and kind of still be happy. And it doesn't bother me that much, though. I recognize I'm out of the habit of doing something. Um, so for example, like I go when uh, I, I try to floss a lot, obviously I, I, I when well not obviously, but I often don't do a good job of flossing all the time. Um, And I'll definitely notice myself being in days where, you know, I'll floss every day for four or five times in a week. And then the next week it's zero times or once or twice. Um, But I've noticed, I, I, I also try to brush my dog's teeth, but I have it. Like whether I floss and whether I brush my dog's teeth are very much correlated. No because way. It's the habit of when I go to floss, like, okay, I need to brush my dog's teeth as well. So I'll floss and then brush his teeth, um, which is really silly, but I think it very much signals like when we get in the habit of doing something in a routine, like, okay, for me, flossing and brushing my dog's teeth are very much connected. So when one of them's going, the other one's also going yeah it's a still example but um i think it highlights the the power of being in a habit of doing something Uh,
0: and there's a lot of good research i don't know if you read james clear's book atomic habits but what he would recommend if i can recommend to you would be i need need to find a habit that you already have in your life so you recognize that the link between brushing your dog and your floss is pretty strong but you're not consistent with either of those, yeah. Find a habit that you are super consistent with, whether it's like in the morning, drinking a glass of coffee or whatever in the morning, then link to that, your flossing habit, bada boom, bada bang, you're flossing more and you're not thinking about it.
1: (laughs) Awesome. I love that. Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no, not take it or leave it, but I that just came to mind. And kind of off of that, it doesn't have to be a habit, but it could be any belief or behavior that you can think of maybe in the past year, year plus, whatever time you want that you found is like is new to you, but you found is like really improved your life.
1: Yeah. um, So I have, I'm sure there are other examples, but I have one example in mind and it's maybe further than a year, a year and a half. Maybe it's more like three or four years But so this idea of, and again, I haven't studied it that much, but this idea of like non-dualism and not thinking of things as so separate. I've encountered this word through, uh, there's a a Franciscan priest teacher named Richard Rohr. Uh, He's awesome. He's got a lot of cool philosophical tidbits. Um, So I encountered it through him, but it's kind of borrows from Eastern religions and Eastern thinking so of not thinking of the world as separate and separate entities, but kind of different forms of the same thing. And so in the, uh, yeah, maybe the last five, I don't know how many, ever many years I kind of first kind of encountered this idea. Um, it really changed my thinking and, and I'll bring it to nature because it changed my thinking a lot on nature. Um, because I found that in environmentalist circles, there's a lot of anxiety and sorrow, which are which are good. And it's, you know, totally valid emotions. Um, but a lot of it is about losing stuff that we have. So it's, oh, we're losing rainforests, we're losing nature, things are becoming more civilized, more urban, um, m- the built environment is taking over nature. And again, those are completely valid things, I, all of which I would, I would totally agree with. But a small spin on that, that I've noticed is really helpful for me, at least, is to think about, less of a dualism between nature and non-nature and thinking of you know non-nature as still like beautiful and you know kind of composed of things that at some point were in nature um and being less less about trying to hold on of something that's there and, and keep it and like as buddhists would say like being attached to things and kind of just recognizing when things are when things are in a different form or when things change Um, And so being as connected to uh, the spinning of a fan as I would be the, you know, twirling of a bug who's alive. And again, you know, I I don't flatten my view of nature and non-nature to just see them as the exact same thing, but I found this to be very helpful in thinking about nature. And this has kind of helped me, which I think came across in class a lot of like thinking about nature in a city as just as good and valuable and beautiful as nature in a pristine forest. And this is also even tied back, it goes back to early environmentalism in the in the 1900s, where wealthy white people said, okay, nature is when we go into a forest and when there's no human civilization around, that's nature. And that's when you experience the benefits of nature. And for working class people, uh, they, that were kind of, and especially if you go into things of like racism and kind of forcing people to live in certain areas and excluding people to li- live from living in other areas, some people are forced to live in areas that are not by nature and they're in cities. Um, they can't afford to kind of visit national parks. We talked about that a little bit in class. And so kind of using nature is like an exclusive term for pristine, you know, living things, how we might define that. Uh, it's a bit exclusionary, and so thinking about it—it's been helpful for me thinking about okay, nature. Where can nature is everywhere, and how can we think of nature as less of a specific thing and more of just um, there's no difference between living and non-living things. It's been helpful, and again, it's it's kind of a, a fluid idea without specific defined boundaries. And, and you know, I, I certainly wouldn't prescribe this kind of way of thinking on to anybody else or onto specific issues, because I know there are a lot of problems that need to have boundaries between two different things to, you know, solve those problems and improve the world, but just in small ways that has helped me to, to think about nature and to appreciate nature in areas in which I wouldn't have appreciated it, you know, 15, 20 years ago, or when I was first learning about environmentalism. Yeah, that's probably a, a long answer, but uh, but that's kind of a, a newer thing in the last few years.
0: No, that's awesome. And is there anywhere that you remember being like a good intro point to Richard Rohr or this idea of non-dualism?
1: Oh man, I've been asking other people this. <laughs> um, I I don't have a good. So Richard Richard Rohr is a Catholic priest, so he definitely comes at it from a rel- and not a religious angle. That's probably a bad way of explaining it, but certainly a Christian perspective on it, but he certainly borrows from other thinkers. And so I don't know good. I've still been kind of trying to search for sources in terms of uh, Eastern religions and uh, Eastern thinking. And so, yeah, I will leave that to the audience to find their own because the I, I haven't done a good kind of open search of kind of the best people to think of.
0: Gotcha. But off of that idea, are there any other books that you would recommend or another way I like to ask it is any books that you've gifted more than any other to friends, family, whoever?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think we were talking about this earlier. I tend to read fiction books because in my day-to-day work, I'm reading a lot of papers and nonfiction things. So I need kind of, when I read, I need breaks and kind of fun fiction things. Um, but I will, I have a good, good fiction book that I'll that. I think also still plays on some of these ideas. Um, there's a book called Recursion by Blake Crouch. Uh, it's kind of a newer book. It, it, it's a cool Really cool twist on like memory and time. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of it.
0: That's awesome. And no, I think, thank you for giving a fiction book because I don't know right now in this transition from school where I'm reading, I would read nonfiction for pleasure as well, but like now I have even more time and I'm not like being told what to learn and what to read. So I think like it's easy for me to fall into just like a nonfiction book after a nonfiction book but there is a lot to be said for like thinking creatively and reading fiction. So thank you. And for- it's
1: purely a, a it, it's nothing. I, I think it's good. I mean, I, I, I should be reading more nonfiction. It's purely just like a mental break for myself. Absolutely. Just in so consumed with always reading information, information, information during the day um, that it's nice to be more in a story um, versus just information. Um,
0: totally totally and maybe just one or two more questions to to round it out i'd be interested to hear if and sometimes it's a swing and a miss but if there's any quotes or mantras that you either live by or maybe not live by but just find yourself repeating often lately does anything come to mind
1: oh uh Okay. Okay. So here's a good one. I don't even know who this was from, but it's all know that the drop merges into the ocean, but few know that the ocean merges into the drop, which I think is a cool visualization of that idea of non-separateness.
0: Yeah. No, I like that in so far as like changing your perspective, we see kind of, We put like definitions and kind of flags on these different things, titles, labels, whatever it might be. And then we never question those. Right. I like that. That's cool. And last one, super selfish. Any advice for a first time surfer going to (laughs) Costa Rica in two weeks? Very much looking forward to getting on the surfboard, is there any advice you would have for me before I go?
1: Definitely. Um, a couple of things. So surf as much as possible. That's the biggest thing And as often as possible. So surf every day if you can, um, or as much as possible to get your muscle memory uh, there and kind of where you kind of have your, your, your habit of knowing how to pop up. Um, Surf as much as possible and then watch yourself on video if you're able to record yourself. That'll help. That'll help a lot. Um, In surfing is really hard to know when you're surfing what you look like. Things feel a lot differently than they look. Um, So a classic thing in surfing is that you'll be doing something. You'll be on a wave or doing something and you feel like it looked really cool or you feel like you did. You moved a lot. And then if you see it on video, it's actually a lot smaller of a movement or more disjointed. Um, at least for like novices like myself, um, it, it's, it's, it's hard to know what you're actually doing. And so when you're beginning, it'll help you know. So let's say you, you know, you're on a wave and you think you, you've turned and you're at the peak of the wave and you watch yourself on video and you might actually still be kind of in the flats or you might be behind the peak of the wave more than you thought. So it'll help you get a sense of what you thought you were doing and where you actually were on the wave. Yeah. Those are kind of the, probably two basic things. Yeah. Surf, surf as much as you can.
0: I love it. Well, thank you for all the advice. And that was a lot of fun, especially digging into some of your research that I didn't get the chance to take your class. So this was kind of like a free lesson in, in those classes. So I appreciate it
1: of course thanks for having me on it was awesome to to be here and talk with you
0: a lot of fun and stay safe going to hawaii tomorrow and thank you for jumping on the podcast before heading on a nice vacation hopefully you'll get to surf out there
1: of course of course thanks
0: awesome hey everybody thank you all for tuning in hope you enjoyed that one As always, you can find links to everything we discussed, show notes, and a lot more goodies like my favorite reads on my website at chrismcgrory.net. That's C-H-R-I-S-M-C-G-R-O-R-Y.net. Thanks so much and see you next time.